everybody. This is Keith Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast. And this week I have the most amazing bass player, Mike Brignardello. How's it going, Mike? Hey, Keith. Good to see you. Good to be with you today, man. I, you and I have known each other since the early 2000s. We met. Uh, you were playing on the first record I remember playing with you on was the Lonely Grill album. Yes. Which yes. Uh, you just brought up here, the, the gold record. I wanted you guys to sign platinum, it. Platinum, whatever it is. Platinum record, and baby. Platinum record, that's right. <laughs> and to sign it and stuff. And that, boy, what a memory. I had to get me some autographs. Oh, man. Every, I, I was telling you a couple of minutes ago, everything about that record was just right. From the title, Lonely Grill, on down. Those cuts, the, your, your, and the songwriting, the playing, everything, the yeah. production, Dan Huff, everybody brought it. It was Yeah, it was a record. different, it was definitely a gear change for us because we'd been sort of this country entity for a long time with John Rich singing on the stuff and this was also the first record without John Rich mm-hmm. uh, and and with Dan Huff coming along came from more of a pop background it was kind of more like the songs that he was bringing in and right. the songs that we found and that it was just a, like changing gears you know yeah. yeah, it was really cool and getting you to play on it of course you know? oh man yeah that was that was definitely a, a, a watershed moment that whole record was pretty amazing yeah no fun amazing yeah good good word <laughs> um, so anyway I just want to give you a, a quick rundown here um the, to the listeners um so mike brignardello um so here's some of the people that he has recorded with and then we'll go into like you playing live too but uh amy grant which you started out with i believe tim mcgraw faith hill vince gill waylon jennings plays song with waylon jennings in the studio lone star of course blake shelton toby keith trace atkins rascal flats just just to name a few right <laughs> um but that that's just like for a long time, you were a session guy here in Nashville, mm-hmm. and you didn't really tour that much. And then since then, we're going to talk about this later, since then you've kind of shifted a little bit from not being stuck in the studio where it's kind of not the most fun environment, you know, mm-hmm. if you've been doing it for years, it's a little mundane, I guess, you know, to like the love of playing live. And yeah. All that. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, I think in a lot of guys' careers do this, you, you, you know, you sort of bounce back and forth. You know, most of us start out playing live. You play clubs, you play whatever gigs when you were a kid growing up and all that stuff. And that's, I did that, knocked around on the road for years and stuff. And then um, got with bands in Memphis that would get record deals. And of course, I you know wanted to play on the record and all that kind of stuff. And I worked with a guy named Larry Raspberry way back in the day. And we did a record for Mercury Records. And then there was a uh, singer-songwriter named Keith Sykes down there. Um, who's written with Jimmy Buffett and a bunch of other people. Anyway, I did a couple of records with him, and I really liked doing that. I liked the sort of the creative environment of the studio. I'd never really done that much before. and um, But I was mostly playing live, and I was uh, touring with a band at the time. This is, man, in the early 80s in Memphis. It was a Christian rock band called DeGarmo and Key. Yeah. And they got a record, uh, they got a call from a, a management company. said, hey, we've got this little artist named Amy Grant. She wasn't, you know, Amy Grant yet. And they said, we want to do a couple of dates with her, and record them and would you, would you guys want to do those and so we went and did those and met her and she was you know 19 I think at the time but beautiful and compelling just a wonderful person um, and her producer Brown Bannister was there and he he sort of uh, oversaw uh, doing these live recordings and so we played two nights in Oklahoma and they got two records out of those two nights I don't think we overdubbed wow. one note there was Amy Grant live volume one and then a year later they released Amy Grant live volume two and I think they both went gold it really was successful records anyway i headed off with her producer brown banister who said you know have you thought about a 
concession career. And I'm like, yeah, I think about that all the time. So he said, why don't you try Nashville? So I started commuting up here. And because I had worked with, I didn't know this at the time, but because I'd worked with Amy and Brown, who were two, they were sort of inventing contemporary Christian music back then, or, you know, some of the founders, uh, uh, it sort of opened every door for me. And my career just took off. And I played with a whole bunch of uh, Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman, a bunch of early you know, sort of the founding, you know, Christian artists, you know, way back when. Question, um, were you always, did you grow up as a Christian? And is that kind of what you got in? I, I did not. In, or was it just I, happened? I, no, just no, I did not. Christian? My family were not big churchgoers and all that stuff. And I didn't really have uh, much of that in my life or whatever. And um and I, it, I tell you, it was actually these guys, and uh, I mentioned the Carmel and Key Band. They were a Christian rock band back then. And they were the first guys that I met who were Christians, but they were cool. I always had yeah. this thing in my mind that, you know, they're nerds and you can't have any fun and everything's about what you can't do and all that stuff. And they sort of opened my eyes to all that. And then Amy really did, too. It, um, just showed me how you can live your life and have joy and all that stuff and it's not about all the don'ts and whatever I had a bunch of misconceptions a lot of the cliches that a lot of people believe in so I didn't become a believer until I was an adult like in my 20s late 20s like 29 30 even yeah so it was yeah it's 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 been a so they were they were Christians and they had faith but they just didn't try to sell it to you all the time they weren't trying to push it on you not at all And, and especially somebody like Amy who lives it and doesn't preach it she just whatever she just you know kind of lives it and and that's very um uh, what's the word it's she's really compelling and and it's and i think it attracts people you're going what is it about this person that makes them so special and you find out it's that it's the love of christ showing it's a light that they have yeah absolutely yeah I get, I get that, yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, and here's the thing that I like about your growing up in Memphis is, is that my favorite year or years in music are 68 and 69, and you would have been about, what, 20 years old then? Yes, let's like, see. In your early 20s? Yeah, something, something? somewhere around yeah. then, yeah. Uh-huh. What an amazing time uh, with the political change and all the stuff yep. with music going on. Yep. Those were, to me, like the most magical musical years in history, yeah. in my opinion. Well, I feel so lucky to have grown up there as a kid. Um, I had a little transistor radio. That's all I could afford. And the only thing that it would pick up was, was a couple of big AM stations, WDIA and WLLK. There were two uh, R&B stations. And so I grew up listening to really nothing but R&B. That's all I could get like on the Ray radio. Charles and all that yeah, stuff and all Otis Redding and, wow. and all that. Booker T and the MGs. And they played a lot of Memphis music, a lot of stuff that came out of Stax, Rufus Thomas. Um, and a whole bunch of Sam and Dave and, and uh, Wilson Pickett and all this stuff. And I heard all this stuff growing up as a kid. And I just thought that was all of music. I thought all of music was just R&B. Right. <laughs> you know. That's and then, of course, was. later, you know, you hear, you know, the English you know, Beatles and rock and later on and all this stuff. But, but that's what I grew up with as a kid. And so it really, I think that's why I became a bass player. That music is just so ingrained in me from the time I was five or six years old. That's just kind of all I heard yeah. until I got you know much older, a teenager. Yeah, that's true. Would you say that that, that kind of music back then, especially at that time, uh, that the bass was kind of more of like in like a thing? Like, a- like well, you absolutely. could hear the bass part yeah. and they could like have little uh, bass figures, little notes, like you know, they would yes. write in bass parts. Yeah, and the thing to me is, of course, I like Stack so much, so naturally I would like Motown, and of course you hear all the Motown stuff on the radio, and James Jamerson, of course, for every bass player, that was, you know, pretty life-changing the first time you hear that guy, 
and I would th- think as a kid, what's the, I couldn't figure out what the bass player was doing, but I knew he was he was doing something different from the rest of the band. I couldn't. I wanted to know how did he figure out to play that note or this thing? How would all that fit? He really really intrigued me. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that's why I, I I became a bass player. I just heard that music. It really spoke to me as a kid, right, growing up. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it was such a great place to be from because. Um, you know, before I came along, you know, back in the 50s, they had the Rockabilly era, Sun Records and all that, Elvis and all that stuff, and Jerry Lee Lewis and all that good stuff came out of there. And then in the 60s, Stax came along. And then in the 70s, um, there was a studio called American Music there that had B.J. Thomas. They did Dusty Springfield. That was in Memphis? Yeah, in Memphis. And and so they had, there was this, all this pop music that was coming out of there too. So it was a, a great place to be from, the, 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 the musical um heritage the music it was it was so broad you yeah. know what i mean there was so much stuff going on there whatever yeah. you like what, what do you think it was was about memphis in general and i've had some other people from memphis too i think greg morrow started out in that i talked yeah, to last we week we came up together yeah yeah right mm-hmm. um what do you think in your opinion i guess everybody has a different a different take on it but uh in your opinion what was it about memphis and that area and all that that the music almost like muscle shoals or something that yeah. came out was it what is it about that well, geog- th- geographical area yeah i think for memphis of course the their their musical foundation start way back in the in the early 1900s in the 20 with wc handy and then later on with bb king and all the blues artists from back you know way back when in the 40s and the 50s and stuff like that and then wc handy all the blues that it goes back to the 20s so there's always been a huge music scene there mostly around black music you know it sort of coalesced around that and i think uh and and you know sun records were always chasing i mean you were talking about watching the elvis movie the other day right and they talked about i think there's a scene in there where sam phillips he's looking for a white guy who sounds like a black artist right Right. that and so i think there was always that in in memphis music you know what i mean elvis certainly was influenced by by all that what he heard um and so it might be maybe it's a little bit because I know they used to have those tent revivals and stuff like that in the, in a the, little in the bit south and absolutely all around and and then and when, and when when Greg and I came up we we <laughs> we grew up in a in a, a part of town uh, in North Memphis it was uh, I grew up in a, in a place called Fraser and he grew up in a place called Raleigh and and for some reason back then Greg and I kid he said we said it was hard not to be in a band back then in the late 60s and early 70s there was like three bands on every block right, right. and so that's just kind of what you when I came up I just thought that's what you did you were in a band <laughs> You, know, you just yeah. you had to be in a band instead of going to work with a briefcase and uh, you know your, your suit you you're just in a band Everybody yeah in a band. yeah yeah absolutely and so I think I was just lucky I think right time right place you know the luck of the draw all that stuff all this stuff was going on there um, later on I worked with a guy named Van Duren um, who was part of the big star scene and i've just there's been so much stuff that's come come out of there through the years right and still goes on i mean there's still you know a happening scene down there today yeah yeah um so for a while there you you know you grew up and you learned and you played with amy grant stuff like that what uh, you you actually had moved to la for a while right and what, what, what how did that come about right well i came to nashville in the early 80s and started in my session scene you know kind of cranked so it was memphis then nashville then la then back right to nashville. right okay, right, right and and, and I, the session scene kind of took off right away and it did all these you know contemporary christian records and all that sort of stuff uh and i did that for about 
six or seven years and and was kind of looking for a change to change it up a little bit and then dan huff who i'd met playing sessions here and out in la uh was putting a band together and asked and called me from la where he was living at the time and asked me would i be interested and i said absolutely so how did he get your number how did he know well you? we had known each other from playing sessions i, oh, I, I met him okay. uh, here in nashville before he moved to la and then i would see him I, I would go out there occasionally and work and typically he would be on the session and i'd see him out there and just and we were just friends, right? And, and his brother David, and just their whole family. And his, I knew his parents and loved his parents. And yeah, his dad I mean, was a big arranger, like a big Ron Huff was just arranger. Dan's parents, Ron and Donna Huff. <laughs> Man, <laughs> did he luck out! I've told him that a million times. Um, yeah, but he just a great family, and just you know whatever. And so just really hit it off. And and um, so I knew him. So he called me about would I be interested in doing this band thing? And I'm like, absolutely. So. Um, went out there and tried it for a few times anyway wound up moving out there but like from 88 to 93 and spent five years out there was just kind of looking for a change here anyway and did that for five years until it ran its course and then dan and i and david all three of us moved back here in i think 93 back to nashville wow and that that band was called giant right 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 what was the um that, I, that was rock music. I mean, it was like late '80s rock. Yeah, right? yeah. It rock was, it was, it was melodic rock, is what I'd call it. You know, some people call it. I mean, we had long hair and all that. That was sort of the thing at the time. But it wasn't like hair metal. I mean, Dan is such a melodic, unbelievable player. It wasn't metal per se. It was just our version of you know melodic rock and all that yeah. stuff. And we did a couple of records. We did a record on A uh, and M, our first record called "Last of the Runaways," and the second record uh, on Epic was called uh, "Time to Burn." And we toured a bunch. We spent a lot of time in Europe touring and stuff that because that music was all, had never really gone away. It's and it's still alive and well in Europe. Right. Um, <laughs> and um, and anyway, and, and we you know, toured a bunch. We 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 spent uh, we lived like in England for three months making the first record and all that kind of stuff. Wow, and spent, you made the spe- record in England mm-hmm. instead of L.A. Did right? the first record, wow. yeah, and it's and just spent lived over there for three months and I loved wow. it. It was a phenomenal experience. Wow. And then we toured over there a whole bunch. It was just it was just a better touring ground for us than 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 the states were. Now, so did Dan produce that album, or was there another producer? No, we had a, a producer named Terry Thomas. Okay. Um, you know, Dan's always been a producer at heart, and so yeah, he he, you could at least at the very least say he co-produced both records because you know so much of this stuff's ideas yeah, and arrangement, yeah, just right. spilled out of him. Yeah, uh, and we had. When when we when we were you know getting ready to do the record, we did home demos of these things that Dan produced, and the record was just basically a recreation of what we had done in Dan's bedroom studio. You know what I mean? With yeah. you know better sure. sounds and real drums and all that stuff. But yeah. but yeah, it was that. But but the chance to go into a a bigger studio with sort of better microphones and better uh, more yeah. time, take yeah. your time yeah. on it. Yeah, and you think. spend the time on it. Yeah, like yeah. I said, we spent three months making that first record. Wow. Yeah, so which is kind of unheard of these days. Wow. Uh, but but it was, it was like a, uh, a Fleetwood Mac record or something almost, like a miniature version of a Fleetwood Mac record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was it was great to just immerse yourself in the project. And and I like sort of being away over there. You're, you're away from distractions and all that kind of stuff. And it just that's all you could think about was that record. And and it was, I mean, it was, it was a great time. I really enjoyed wow. it. That's yeah. amazing. And uh, so that, 
um, just kind of ran its course through about 93 or so, and then yeah. it was time to do something else. You know, else. we were, our style of music was, you know, the 90s changed everything, and, and that sort of melodic rock fell out of fashion, and we were sort of, we were kind of at the tail end of all that. We had had a, a business foul up prior to, to getting our record out that cost us about a year, and and if, if we'd have, you know, been a little bit uh, uh, faster off the mark, we might have, you know, made a... You know, bigger splash or whatever but it, yeah. it is what it is you know what i mean it's yeah. it's, it's you know things it, happen the it way had they to happen so you can be where you are now right? yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, here's the thing for me it's like i wouldn't trade it for for up uh, for anything what we did the places we got to go to the experience that we had it was it was i loved it and the main reason that i actually took the gig of course you, nobody knows how any of this can unfold but i took it to work alongside dan huff for all those years yeah and it was and that eventually it was, paid off because it was you guys an eye made a bunch opener for me. Yeah, that, yeah, right? I, country. I, I, you you got to kind of raise your game when you work with him, right? Yeah. And so it was good for me. I, I really like that. Yeah, I was, you know, working with Dan Huff is is was just an experience for me as well because then, like, as a drummer, I'm playing and he's sitting there playing the guitar, producing from the guitar chair, which yeah. is pretty amazing anyway it's to be really able to play tough. and produce to yeah. know what's going on and i would play it one way with a certain kick pattern or something like that he's big into kick patterns just like mutt lang would be or anybody sure and uh he would totally bust me on that like you know like we do another take and say hey yeah Keech, that one kick pattern you were doing on and i'm like how do you know how do you remember that playing the guitar and hearing all that but he's just such a uh, maestro when it comes to every single player and yes, he knows he and remembers and yes he is and his production career bears witness to that I yes. mean he's been so successful rightfully so yeah he's an, he's it's just amazing um, I learned a lot just and I never had been that much of a session player before Dan Huff um, yeah uh, when we made our early records the early Lone Star records I wasn't playing on those you know I was just it was like other session guys which is the, and that's the typical band starting out that's yeah kinda that's the typical template here yeah yeah they take a band in and nobody plays on very it. <laughs> rarely if anybody would ever play on their first you know record yeah. but then as time went by dan huff uh came along and said i'd like to get the band more involved in the production yeah and so we got to spend smart. a little more time he's a smart it. guy yeah 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 he knows it wasn't one of those let's get it done in a week and mix it and then right. put it out it was right. like well and of course and and, and to me band should play on there because i mean when i was starting out um starting out i told you about you know getting with artists in memphis and playing on the records if 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 i was with an artist and they got a record deal and then they were going to go cut it with all session players i would quit the band literally because it's like i'm not here to just play on the road i mean i want to grow my yeah. career i want to play on records too whatever whatever yeah and so you know without that so to i, I and i've quit two bands because of that reason right. and, and so i come in and i see the band sitting in the control room looking all kind of glum i get it it's just like you want to play on your own record because it makes it more yours yeah, and right. i totally get that i'm a i'm a big proponent of bands getting to play on their own record you yeah know? and would you say it's one of the things i wanted to talk about uh being a session guy and all that would you say that that because back in the day that was what it was everybody you know if ray charles or somebody had a, a their road musicians or whatever and they go in to cut a record it's those guys playing all yeah. that stuff and then the wrecking crew came along yeah would you say that in your estimation that that kind of was when that whole thing started yeah, I think so. I mean, you you th you think about there were there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, musical scenes that had studio rhythm sections. Motown certainly had their studio band, and Stax had their studio band. But typically, the artists that they brought in there, I mean, I mean, 
uh, Marvin Gaye didn't have a band that I know of. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. like Marvin Gaye and his band. It wasn't the Supremes and their band. It wasn't, so there was a necessity to have. It, sort it wasn't of a Otis section. Redding and his yeah. band. You know what I'm saying? It yeah. wasn't Steve. It was they were artists, so they needed you know kind of ready-made bands. So these bands are put together. But I think when you look at other things like like bands, like country bands, country artists, rock bands, and something like that, they are they are have people who've been traveling together and blah blah blah, and the chemistry and they know all these things right that they work together. I think it's a different a little bit different scene, and I think and I think the Wrecking Crew was sort of in between those two because they did work with artists like you know what Nancy Sinatra. They didn't she didn't have a band and, yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing. But they also worked with Beach Boys who yeah. had their band. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. I almost think of it as like, you know, you're the head of a record label and, and or producer, and your job is to make a great record. And you could say, well, yeah, we could use their road band. It might take a little time, but we can eventually get something. Or we can go in right now with these players that know their instruments so well, right. and they're such good uh, technicians right. with their craft that we could make a hit they know what to play on on a hit record like Hal Blaine right Hal Blaine just knows how to hit those things yep. in a certain way yep better yep. than anybody else you know yeah absolutely and I think I'm sorry let me meet that um and I think and I think that's 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 a lot of people I mean I think about the New York scene you think about Steve Gadd all the stuff he's played on and and those things that he sort of transformed records with his, right, with his yeah. drum part, right? What would those be like without Steve Gadd playing on them? You know, well, yeah, to yeah. So, it, so it's that. So I totally get that. And, and you're hiring the cream of the crop and all that sort of thing. But I, but I do know that that um, Mutt Lang will use a band. He, it might take him like Def Leppard or yeah. ACDC. They, it's those guys playing. It might take him a year or two years, but he's got the patience and apparently the money yeah. to do it. You know what I mean? But yeah. I think. I mean, those records come—they're—they're they're just different. They come out a little bit different when when the band guys play them. Um, I don't work—I don't work with him. Um, the guy who produces Chris Stapleton—is it Dave Cobb? Yes. Oh, okay. Dave Cobb. Never met him, but man, I love his records, and I'm told that he uses. The, the bands that he uses like Chris's band and I love his records uh, I don't know who plays bass on them I'm assuming it's his bass player but I lo- there's something about it right it's it just it's its own thing yeah there's an organic kind of yeah you know that those guys can yeah. finish each other's sentences yeah you know, yeah and, and, they play on the road and they've been time. playing this this song for six months on stage yeah. you know what I mean right. and you just come at it differently when you're doing that yeah I think one of the biggest problems I had come in the studio, being not a session player, coming in was uh, the dreaded changes on the fly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was my biggest crutch. I mean, it was like, you know, we learn the song, we run it down, and I've got it in my head, and all of a sudden oh, I say, yeah. hey, why don't we lose the second chorus Instead of that, let's do a bridge right there, and then we'll double the chord. And I'm like, wait, 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 oh, yeah. stop. Oh, why? Oh, yeah. That's it, yeah. I just learned it the other way. Yeah, and every time you stop the, well, hard disk now, I was going to yeah. say tape, but every time you stop that, there's there's another four changes. Yeah. And some will be, okay, take change number two and change it back to yeah. the way it was before. Double the and intro. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. And, and then, oh, yeah. I can't and remember that's part all of, that. And, 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 that's the, and I think that's where session players kind of earn their keep because that's yeah. a skill that we've that we've got because yeah. we know right out of the gate that this thing is going to get hacked up in a million different pieces. And you're going to so, have two or three pencils sitting yeah, there and you at don't, your, you know, ready and, to mark you, it up. Yeah, so it's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had Paul Lyme on here one time and uh, on the podcast, and golly, that guy, he's just a 
that guy just has it down, man. I mean, he can he can sight read. He can make changes on the fly like that. He can suggest things. And there's always these things going on as a drummer, and I'm sure you think of it as a bass player too. Number one, you have to know where you are in the song, looking at the chart, like, okay, it's here, and then it's a chorus. Okay, we're going to do that. You know, think ahead, you know, mm-hmm. read ahead. And then you also have to play precise, like the, you're actual touching the instrument and playing the notes, like finding that pattern and that feel. Right. And then there's that third thing of like, well, i got to play something creative. I can't right. just play like a – a computer you know right. i have to play some cool things you know so mm-hmm. those three things bouncing around inside your head the triangle of of that you right know, right and i think and a, and a lot of that is just it's just doing it over and over you know what i mean it's like the more you do it the the easier it becomes and all that kind of thing it becomes a little bit more second nature and i think it's like and it's like any skill it's like um playing on stage is a skill and it's different from you know being a studio player so it's all that so, i mean studio players are great at what they do but sometimes not all of them but sometimes you stick them on stage and they're not that great they're not excited on stage right you know what i mean so it it's all diff- different skill sets i don't you know no mystery to any of it yeah and so you for a long time session bass player and then you you said when COVID hit or before COVID actually you had kind of undertaken that you wanted to do more playing live and not so much being stuck yeah, in the studio yeah like I've, I've been I've been so blessed I'm so fortunate I've had such a great a long session career since the 80s uh and I've done a lot of it and and, and you know really enjoyed it and all that kind of stuff but playing live there's nothing like getting feedback from the audience stuff like that because you know the thing in the studio you can do the performance of your life you can do the drum take of the universe and at the end of it there's dead silence and all you might hear from the control room would be like hey man uh what happened during the bridge you know what i mean <laughs> there's you're like on this high and then suddenly so so yeah. it's so much fun and well yeah rap. let's listen to that yeah we'll, yeah we'll come in and listen yeah yeah that's it's, it's all it's like all that. that and so yeah. it's so much more fun and gratifying to get out and play live and you get that audience feedback and all that kind of stuff and it's sort of to me it sort of takes you back full circle because that's where most of us most of us did not start in the studio most of us started out playing live right so it takes you back to that and you get that kind of energy so um in 2008 amy grant uh released uh re-released a record i'd played on and um uh and wanted to do a uh, a tour behind it so she called me in 2008 and asked me if i'd do this tour and i said yes did amy actually call you yeah she actually oh, called yeah cool. yeah yeah and and said you know would hey, you be Mike, this is amy yeah <laughs> well again she's i think of her as my little sister right. i don't know i don't think she thinks of me as her big brother but i think of her like that because i've known her since she's 19 yeah and we have been through every life experience good bad up down together that you can think of so it's like we've got a, a you know a good friendship a close That's friendship cool. and so um when she called and, and asked me to, to do this thing i said yeah and i hadn't toured or really played much live god it had been well since giant i guess in 93 so it yeah. had been however many years i did 15 years or something and so um and so i said yeah and really really enjoyed that tour and, and just signed on with her and kind of sort of did that. All the other uh, players, like yeah, session and guys I'm still too. playing with her today. And and we and like you you and Michael and I were talking a few minutes ago. It's like now when you're with an artist and they they say they've got forty or sixty dates a year, whatever it is, it's long weekends. You yeah. you know you're right. still here during sure. the week. I can still be in Nashville and play sessions and do do what I do right yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I've mixed it up and I, and I and I've actually. Uh, in, in 2019, I toured with Trisha Yearwood and really enjoyed that. She was just astounding. 
this wow, the, the, awesome. the singing. What was a great amazing. voice! Man. Yeah, and well, she Amy Grant too, but especially you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just anyway, um, amazing. And um, I tour with you know Mickey Thomas and Starship sometimes. I'm not their regular bass player, but I sub for them, so wow, I play with them a few times cool. a year. And I just like doing that. It's just fun. Um, I'm always going to love 80s rock. I'm always yeah. going to love knuckleheaded rock. So anytime I get to go out with Mickey Thomas and Starship, I yeah. do it. We built this city. Oh my gosh! Well, he's and he still does. Um, he still does fool around and fell in love, which was oh, wow, that big hit with great. Elvin Bishop that he sang when he was oh, 19 years old. Wow! And he does it in the same key. We still do it in Jeez, the, origi- in the is, original key. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Must have been through. Oh my gosh! I mean, yeah, yeah. He's ridiculous. The sweetest guy on the planet. All that stuff. So, anyway. Wow, so any, uh, yeah. So I like I like touring, and I'm still touring with Amy. Um, she, you know, yeah, I guess you're aware, and you saw on the news that she had a really bad bike accident right, about yeah. a month ago. Uh, and so we, we had to cancel our, our tour this year. We were going to do like a U.S. tour, kind of coast-to-coast thing, and had to cancel that. But she's recovering. She's coming back, thank goodness. That's great. Um, and she's going to be okay. And so we're going to do – we do a stand every December uh, with her and Vince Gill at the Ryman. Oh, wow. We do, I think, 12 dates down there. So we'll do that this year. Oh, so I'm gosh. looking forward to that. i got to come see that since it's here in town. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, I'm just glad my friend is bouncing back. I'm glad now, she's doing drums, better. Uh, on that? Uh, uh, that, that will be uh, Billy Thomas. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Vince is a drummer. Yeah. Very cool. um, Greg Morrow was was with us uh, until about a year and a half ago, and then he went to Joe Bonamassa. Right. Right. And so yeah. then our regular touring drummer is John Hammond. Uh, but but anyway, Billy typically does these Christmas shows, so he, that's what he'll do it this year. Yeah, you'll, you'll never see a hack up there. You'll never see some kid that you know. It's well, always uh, no, no the big monster <laughs> the, player. The, the, that, that gig, they're Christmas songs, but 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 they're arranged in such a way that they are challenging. Wow! Oh yeah. Uh, my joke is that every song is in three keys at least. Yeah, right. Well, you played on the Lone Star, our Lone Star record, right? right the right, Christmas right. record that we right, did. Right. And 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 so the arrangements can get pretty mm-hmm. fairly tricky anyway. So so it that's that's the challenge of that gig. It's like they're a Christmas song, but don't you dare lose your place or yeah. your song. We do when we go out and do our Christmas tour now, we do uh Carol of the Bells. Wow. Yeah. It yeah. took us three days to work that song up. <laughs> and at that it. time, we were touring with Phil Vassar and his band. Mm-hmm. So he has this um, um, sax player. She plays flute, too. Oh, cool. And um, just the nine of us on stage, nine musicians on stage. And Richie and, at the time, Richie and uh, Phil would just leave the stage and go, okay, hold on to your butts, you know, like saddle up. You're, you're about to hear this. And then they would leave, and we would do this whole Carol of the Bells with nine musicians, two drummers, two bass players. Two guitar players, wow. uh, um, Patty playing uh, flute mm-hmm. and keyboard. Also, she played keyboards too, and Dean and me and just the whole. Wow! You know, it was just dun 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 Right, right. It took us three days to work that up. Yeah. So we did it the next. We got such a standing ovation every time we did it. The ending of that song is so huge and it's such a long song, and so it's like people are just on their feet. So the second year we went out with Phil Vassar to do that same thing, Phil Vassar suggested that let's not do anything after that <laughs> because we can't follow that. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do, come out and sing like, you know, uh, you know, Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells right, after right, that or right. something. It's like that needs to be the last song. So anyway, that was pretty cool. That's you know. great. That's but, great. Yeah, I know what you mean about all oh the my gosh. Christmas yeah. songs and can we, be And we've got um, – the the uh, the the guy the musical director for this is a guy named Jason Webb who is just who's a keyboard player who's just a musical genius and he's arranged some of these things 
that are just they're so mighty but stuff that you know i mean i grew up as a kid playing r&b and rock and roll yeah. and what it makes do I it know? more fun doesn't it what do i know yeah gig, and it's I like mean, wow I, I mean but i actually i really like it i really like the challenge and like you were saying earlier uh just being able to tour and have some of that downtime you could work on a single bass part all day long yes and not be sort of you know feel rushed or anything yes absolutely and some of those i will to try to get them under my hands you know yeah. what i mean and having vince up there adds it's 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 indescribable he because he's so spontaneous and 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 what he does it might even he might even change songs it's not just he'll change a solo it's just I don't know. It's it's it, it's really weird. It's like the the thing I get from watching him is like I want to approach music like him. Like every time he does every song, it's its own adventure. You yeah. know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. And it's just like hmm. That's I don't think he ever phones anything in, if you will. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never hear him do the same thing exactly the same way. It's it's he's he's in the moment. He always reaches reaches yeah. for something. Yeah. 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 I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like, who was that, Peter Green or somebody that said, he? why would I ever want to play the same thing again? Because I said something to him one time, just play right. what you did on the record. And he's like, right. why so, would I ever want yeah. to do that? I've already done that. <laughs> I've already done that. Why would I want to do it again? Such a strange way to look at things. Yeah. But then someone like Vince Gill, maybe just the artist in him. I th- yeah, I think he's got just, I think there's just so much music in him. You know, just that night, a different different facet comes out, you know. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, um one of the other things I wanted to ask you about playing bass in general, um, for somebody that's young, maybe wanting to start out playing bass or being a session bass player and all that, um, what is it about, and it's always fascinated me, is how uh, a bass player finds that, you know, I've talked to my podcast before about pocket and groove, mm-hmm. how you have a groove and then there's that pocket and to be able to find that pocket. And sometimes I've always even sort of um, narrowed it down to, it's the kick drum hitting on the exact downbeat, but then the snare kind of laying back just it's just a hair, mm-hmm. just so it doesn't sound rushed. Right. It's kind of that pullback. Right. And but with the bass player, the bass, the kick drum and the bass hitting at the same time is such a magical thing. How do you? Um, I guess my question is: um, Is there a technique or a way you look at it, the way you listen to it, the way you? go about it yeah i think you know obviously the the groove of the song dictates you know sort of you know where you're going to put it front middle back whatever and that kind of thing um growing up in memphis and listening to so much r&b as a kid my natural default i'll always play on the back of the beat and you know of course that's not appropriate it's for rock and you know for you know a lot of country stuff you want to you know be you know right with the kick drum or maybe just a if you look at it on a pro tool screen just a fraction a breath behind right. because um, that's something that, that I've heard people pick up from Mutt Lang. You, you want the kick drum to be the transient. And then if sometimes if the bass hits right on that transient, it sounds to me weird. It buries it a little bit or it's well, overlaps some, or something. something happens, yeah. yeah, that it just doesn't sound as solid as if you move that bass back just a hair, maybe two milliseconds, not, not enough to where the ear picks it up, but it's just a feel thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about COVID, how that's just changed things. Uh, you know, everybody's got a, a studio rig at home. Everybody's got Pro Tools at their house or something like that. 
And um, and during COVID, I think a lot of us did a whole lot more of that. So I spent yeah. a whole lot more t- time in front of the screen than I typically will. Typically, you know, things come in and I'll knock them out and send them out and that'll be that. So it's but, kind of different than when you're in a session and you're out on the floor right. versus playing in front of the screen where right. you see and, everything And being literally. able to take a visualization yeah. of like, why does this, why does this feel weird? It, it, it looks just right, but it doesn't sound just right. And I think, I think a lot of it is sort of understanding a little bit of that, you know, it's kind of where stuff blooms, if yeah. you will, where the note blossoms, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but, I th- but, I th- but, but it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, on rock, you don't want the bass laying back. I don't think on a lot of a country, you don't want the bass laying back. You want it to be right on the nose. Um, you know, a lot of pop music is that way, especially since it's programmed. Everything is quantized right to the right to the grid and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but but the stuff that's always been interesting to me is the stuff that's that's not perfect like that. It's yeah. a little more organic feeling. I think it's one of the reasons I like Chris Stapleton records. They're not loose in, in any way and like any kind of bad or anything like that. But to me, they they just don't feel like somebody's chopped them all up and put them on a grid. They feel right. like a band like breathing, right? Like that's one thing when Kenny Aronoff plays, it sounds like a guy playing. I mean, it doesn't, yes. he's trying not, he doesn't try to fit like a drum machine. I mean, it's it's just like he's kind of not all over the place, but he's he's within the grid. But it's just like well, a dude it, no, it definitely it definitely moves. Yeah. And I think and that's what, and I like that. And I think that's why he's been so successful. He you know that chorus is going to lean forward a yeah, little bit, right. but that doesn't translate. Is is like oh my gosh, the groove's weird. It translates to man, this is exciting. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's energy. He could, he's not rushing. He's just kind of leaning leaning on that groove. Um, Barry Beckett used to be the king of kind of where the groove was. Yeah, and I got a chance to work with him some not not as much as I'd like to, but I've been told stories by people who worked with him a lot that he would that he would back in the old days of Muscle Shoals that he would have a mic out when he was playing with those tracks when he was <clears throat> playing the track excuse me and he would talk talk to the band during the track and playing he'd the say keyboards? yeah okay Roger going into this chorus just lean forward a little bit and they'd play the chorus and he'd go okay coming out of this on this verse now let's just lay it back a hair wow. so he was all about yeah. where it's set and, and to me those things feel musical it's it's it's, it's musical to me for the verse to relax a little bit just a hair and just kind of settle down just a little bit and then when the chorus comes in it leans forward a little bit it's a little right, more exciting yeah. it's all that you know what i mean same thing with rock i can't be playing the whole song in back of the beat it just makes the track sound sluggish and whatever yeah. i got to be up there with the drummer on that you know yeah. what i mean yeah it's that kind of thing so i think so i think you know in in, in none of my favorite records were were cut <laughs> on the grid right, those motown records yeah. and stacks records they're loose as can be and yeah. i don't care they and feel like on gr- superstition stevie wonder yeah, playing drums it's, it's, it starts yeah. out one tempo and it's totally yeah in yeah, and at the end, yeah, you do a needle end. drop at the end, yeah. Um, a record that I did um, years ago with Travis Tritt was called Trouble. Right, I remember that. Yeah, and that you played so, on that. Yeah, uh-huh. and oh, that's, that's and, and, and we used to do that as a cover band. Yeah, like, and, when, yeah, we, and the great Steve Turner was playing drums on that. Well, that song definitely moves. It starts out yeah. at yeah. It starts out at maybe I don't know ninety six. Call it that, and at the end it's like ninety eight. So it, it, it's it's not yeah. like. 
it, it's not like it moved 10 beats yeah. and it's a gradual thing but it just to me that it keeps that song it just sounds more exciting it's, yeah it's, it's a slight little speed right ramp it's almost hold. like i think of it as like the drummer as being more of a conductor than sort of like a drum machine or yes something. yeah like, and, like he, and he definitely was and it, to me it's one of the th- reasons that that record sounds so exciting yeah. i listened to it the other day and i thought oh my gosh we're playing that so fast <laughs> right <laughs> i'm glad i don't have to play that now but um but it's but it's that when i was a kid there was uh, i remember a, a song by rock pile dave edmonds and rock pile okay and albert lee was playing b bender on it and it was called sweet little lisa uh i don't even know how to describe it not not exactly rockabilly but that whole thing is a speed ramp that's two and a half minutes and for those ramp. that don't know what a b bender is it's like your guitar a six string guitar yeah. and it has a little um oh i don't know like a um is it talking about the hip thing or the the it's, where it's, you kind of it, pull it, the if, yeah if if like bass players can th- yeah can think of it as like a is like a hip shot but it's it's it has a it has a it's a mechanical thing that is that's attached to this to the bridge where where when you and you it's either attached, pull the, the yeah the, attached to the button on your strap and when you yeah. push the guitar down it just it's it's bending the it's notes it's spring loaded right? and you push it and it bends yeah. the note like and it sort of sounds guitar. like yeah. a steel like a like a pedal so steel. You play a note, and one of the notes will go or something right, like that. Exactly, right? exactly like that. And he was playing that, and that thing gets faster the whole record, and it's so exciting. I mean, it's yeah. just man. I mean, it's just two like hockey talk women. That yeah, song yeah, starts that. out one tempo, and it's totally different. Yeah, by the yeah. End. I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody ever said that was a bad record. Nobody ever said, "Oh, no, it speeds up." No, Ugh. no. And I think, and I think it's so much of the stuff, especially the early. Uh, God, you go back and listen to those Beatles records, and they're loose as they can be, and it yeah. doesn't matter. It right. just doesn't matter. So. Imagine, just try to picture a Beatles record with maybe some like the Wrecking Crew playing on it or something. It's like Session Guys or something yeah. like that. How yeah. totally yeah. different. W- wouldn't of, be the same thing. Now, wouldn't a, be the same a, band. A buddy of mine, uh, Bobby Huff, has done, he's got a great YouTube channel. He's done a great thing where he's he's talked about how you know the grid the grid the grid right. just doesn't work on so many things and so he took a van halen record and put it on the grid i think it was um, running with the devil okay right yeah. and it's horrible it just yeah. kills the record right. and then he takes a and of course that's the point he's making you that you just you can't do and he then he takes a, a journey record he takes steve perry and tunes his vocals well the one thing is that steve perry sings amazingly in tune right. so there was very yeah. little tuning going on but it, it would affect his slides and stuff like that I see. and it, yeah. it made it horrible again right. it just took the soul right out of it and that's the point he was making it's like you can't tune and grid everything certain things just have to be what they are yeah right and they should that should be i mean yeah. that's the music yeah. that's the thing about music it's personal and it's yes uh, yeah it's like an art like a painting you yeah. wouldn't want to photograph of something sometimes you may want to like a mona lisa right. painting or not a memoir or a man yeah. imagine what yeah. a photograph yeah. of mona lisa would have looked like you would have gone oh my god who's that <laughs> right anyway uh so um you're playing live out there enjoying that um who are you with right now you- i'm touring i'm touring with amy yeah when we tour amy, again yeah. when once she starts touring yeah again. once once she heals up yeah so you've been doing a lot of uh, session work at the house, at home? Yeah, still? I do. I do a fair bit of that anymore. Um, you know, COVID kind of cranked that up for everybody, right. I think. And so I've got my handful of clients who send me stuff, and I really like that. Uh, I've done, this last year, I've done a pretty good bit of work with a guy named Mike Scott and the Waterboys from England. Wow. Um, and the Waterboys have been around for, God, 35 years. They're pretty legendary over there. I don't think they're as, as well-known in the States as they are in, uh, in Europe. But... Um, that has really, really been fun working with him. He comes from such a different 
place from anything that I do over here in the States. I've really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, that is awesome. I wanted to compliment you on something on Amazed when you played on Amazed. Coming into the second verse when you go, that lick, oh my God, that was just like... I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. (laughs) It's just before, it's when the little cymbal swell coming in back into the... Oh, um, cool. uh, Whatever the second verse, whatever the line is in the second verse. um, uh, Of course, the first verse is every time our eyes meet and that kind of thing. The second verse, right before that second verse, you do this bass lick in there. It's just like, whoa. I'm going to have to go back and dig that out. And then it's back to the meat and potatoes. You don't even remember. See, guys like you, they play so many sessions. You're like, I did that? I don't. Somebody played me a record I played on the other day, and I literally was like, that's me? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know they said uh, Steve Gadd would say that sometimes when he was doing clinics or something, and some kid would ask, what was that third measure you played on the oh Record gosh. Brothers album? Yeah. And Steve's like, don't even, I can't. There's no way I could tell you. I don't remember any of that. <laughs> right, right. I just do it and delete the program. Well, and, and I kind of do too. And I think, yeah. and I think that's, a, that's the other thing with session players. I mean, when we're, when we're at the session, we're all in. I mean, all in. Right. You, yeah. you know, especially when you work with some of these amazing producers like Dan or somebody like that. You've got to bring in your A game. Things move fast, and yeah. these other guys are they're getting it fast. So you better too. You know what I mean? They're playing some yeah. amazing stuff. So you better. And you throw. have to serve the song, right? That's yes. your job there. You yeah, just have absolutely. To serve the song. Absolutely. And so I think I think um, uh, you know that's and then and then you you've got to to me I sort of clear the hard drive because when I go to the next session I want to be all in again for them. You know what I mean? Whoever that is. And yeah. whatever. So that was you, when you played that lick on Amaze. That was to me. It was like a fill, like like a drummer doing a really tasty fill, because on the drums was just a swell, a cymbal swell into the the verse, and you just did this fill on the bass that was like just needed to be there. You know, cool. I earned my I pay it. that day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just wondering, like, so in your mind when you're um, in there, what makes you think of like where I'm going to go up or when you go down or when I hear bass parts like that where on a record like a Boston record or something like that. I was yeah. like, what makes the bass player want to play up high on this register oh. for a minute and then change it to back down and then back up again? And Yeah, I, for me, I mean, I don't have any rules. And reg- to me, it's just kind of all in the moment. Um, I think um, I think my philosophy about a lot of that is I saw an interview with uh, Steve Jordan one time, and they asked him what he was thinking about when he was playing on this John Mayer record. Yeah. He said, he said, tell you the truth, I'm, I'm not really thinking at all. Yeah, it's just yeah, and so I'm I'm not it. I'm not really consciously thinking should I go high should I go low it's just kind of just whatever happens. whatever yeah. hits me in the moment yeah. um, and and obviously you know you get you get feedback one way or the other it's like hey that's great or hey please don't do that again you know what I mean and I think I think it's just being willing that's the other thing about session players you if if you are the type of person who embarrasses easily this <laughs> yeah. is not your thing because right. because everything you've got to sort of figuratively go in the in the set in the recording studio and kind of pull down your pants and be willing to, to take <laughs> totally, whatever yeah. comes you know what i mean it's just like yeah you got to throw it out criticism there. is your because some of them sometimes they're going to hate what you do yeah, right, it's like yeah. god what are you literally that and whatever so yeah. okay they hate that okay try something else yeah you know just shrug it off and go on because it's it's that, and sometimes you're going for something, and it's just the stupidest, most ridiculous <laughs> yeah. clam, and everybody laughs at you, and right. that's just part of the deal, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, you have to be able to bounce that off and and just yeah, laugh just about like, it. And yeah, go right yeah, in. yeah, you, you got to laugh at yourself and go on, and you know, try to come up with something else. So yeah. 
you know, and, and everybody does it. You know, what's that air, saying? The, the producer was saying, "Man, I love that sound you're going. You're trying to get, or what, yeah, I love yeah, that part. Yeah, I love what you're trying to do. You're trying yeah. to do. <laughs> kind of a backhanded compliment, but yeah. you know, yeah. Oh God, that that's just where I would just not be able to be a very good session player. Is constant just that you know oh my god I, i'm so terrible today you know you just oh, can't well, be and, and everybody feels that and they're in and, and and even when people are trying to to to, to some of the, some of the stuff that's been said to me i mean it's just like i know they don't mean it that way yeah. but it's just i mean it's just I, i'm trying to think of an example like it, if you're out like, of tune or yeah, something it's like, and Mike, yeah that's, that, that's pretty good but the, yeah, that 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 one over three there that's just that's pretty 80s and, and you know let's try something else i'm like uh, well, the uh, 80s was the best i didn't you know. know it was an 80s lick but thank you <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know you just whatever they don't mean anything by it yeah. you know you just go on yeah well that's cool man well so what's um once um Amy starts touring again. You're gonna just uh, gear oh, yeah. back we'll, up. And- no, we'll do the we'll do the Christmas show. We we had to broom the tour this year. You know, she had that bike bad bike wreck, but she's yeah. getting better, thank God. And um, so we'll do that run with her events. You know, like I say, at the Ryman this year. And then we're they're they're already sending us a calendar for next year. They're gonna try to make up for lost ground. So we start in February and we'll go next year. Yeah, it looks like we'll be very very busy. So wow, I'm happy about awesome. that. Yeah, and and I always tell people when they say. And I hope you feel the same way um, about touring and traveling and all that. You know, do you enjoy it? And uh, some people would say, oh, God, it's a pain. But I think it's what you make it. It's what you bring with you, what things that you plan. You have to have something to do. Right, right. right? Well, you, and, and I think it's also the, the, the band, the crew, the people, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, as you know, one knucklehead can ruin yeah, the bus ride sure. or the band or whatever. Got to be a good hang. And typically, yeah, every band has got one knucklehead. And we've been really, really fortunate that we don't. We got zero knuckleheads in the band and crew, so it makes the traveling really, really easy. And I think a lot of that stems from the um, from from the from the artist. Uh, I think it sort of starts from the head down, right? right yeah. And I think because she typically doesn't attract knuckleheads, and if, if she does, they get kind of get weeded out pretty quickly. Right. Um, so it's a really pleasant experience. Amy just she sort of sets the tone, and it's just and it's just sweet. And I'll have to give props to our. To Kim Keys and Tanya Hinchroff are our other two female singers. So we've got three. We, the band travels on. Amy's our artist is on the bus. So we've got three women on our bus, and they are the three least chick singers on the planet. Oh, I really? mean, I've worked with so many more guys. They're not singers, but they're chick singers. Yeah. The way these women are, and and I think it's because of that. It just makes it so civilized and mellow, and yeah, I don't know. It's just easy. It's it's really cool. easy traveling, yeah. So, and I and I like I like seeing I like seeing the world. You know seeing what I mean? I, I I still really really enjoy that. You and you can sit there and either listen to music or you can listen to podcasts or you can read a book or something like that. I'm recently I've um, I have decided that I I never learned how to touch type, so I bought a course. <laughs> I'm almost sixty years old, and I decided I'm going to learn how to touch type. So that's what I'm going to be working on on the next trip. Okay. Is I'm going to like 
just have the little keyboard in my lap, and I'm just going to practice, practice, practice oh, the that's touch great. thing. Which there I've you go. Never, I've always hunted and pecked. There you go. Yeah. yeah. When I'm actually when I'm out on the road, I don't. I kind of don't do much. I'm 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 thinking about the gig typically during the day, and it's a pretty easy day and whatever. And you can get in and work out, or you can do whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? And kind of chill out. But from from me, I mean, I really look forward to getting at the venue. We usually get there about four o'clock, yeah. and and just doing that whole I, I just sound I like check the, and all that stuff. I like the rhythm of the nice day. Nice. You know what I mean? I like the sound check. I like the you know fooling around the bass and all that kind of junk and. I don't know. I just like yeah. that. I think, honestly, I think life would be pretty dull and boring out on the road if it wasn't for sound check. Believe it or not, sound check is a time to jam on stuff a little bit, yeah. to kind of work on your equipment, to kind of like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's just kind of. And know. Amy's got such a big songbook that she pulls from that we may we may switch songs around and we may add things or try stuff at sound check. Um, she does a thing where she brings in her fan club at Soundcheck. So a lot of times we'll try to play different songs for them in, instead That's of cool. just songs from the set that night. So, and she and like I say, she's got such a big songbook. I don't know how many albums she's put out a whole bunch, but um, she'll pull out something that maybe she pulled out something in Key West that I don't think any of us had ever played. <laughs> wow. But we had some charts to pass around and 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 did it and it, and it got added to the set. <laughs> wow! For a while there, yeah. Well, I guess we'll learn that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all that. So so it's it's fun. She keeps us on our, our toes. Uh, she's she's real spontaneous. She doesn't use a teleprompter. She doesn't do any of that stuff. Um, the set may change. She may change the set on the fly during the show a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, she she keeps it fun. Wow! What a what a pleasure it would be to. Just be on stage with your that band and her and Vince and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty mighty. And and for the Christmas show, um, when when Vince does, they hire uh, they hire a handful of singers, and the vocals are just off the hook. Wow. I mean, it's just it's it's mighty. They hire some session singers from here in town, yeah. and whoa. And so with 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 Amy and Vince, and Kim and Tanya, and then those singers, it's just. It's otherworldly. Yeah, wow. it's really cool. I really, really. I've got to go see that this this uh, season at the yeah. Lyman. Wow, yeah. that's it, be I mean, it's. I was never um, Christmas was not a thing with my family, and it I, wasn't a big deal to me growing up. But man, I'm into Christmas now. I've been doing these things since oh wait, like I say, and, and man, it, it just makes Christmas for me. So isn't it cool that that's kind of how you started out, and that's where you're at now? Like you, you, yeah. With Amy, and then now yeah, you're it's with totally Amy. come it's full just, circle. Some things just yeah. don't change. I something. absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's been. Uh, she's been a constant in my life anyway, even even when we weren't, we weren't working together because she's such a good person. Um, you know, we remain friends and all that stuff, and I'd see her, and, you know, things happen in life. People die. People get married. People, yeah. you know, stuff like that, you know, yeah. and you see them, see her at functions. Like, You're so, like family, you guys. Yeah, she's special. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. I enjoyed it. Good to and, see uh, you, Keith. It has been a long time, and we're signing your, where I'm getting all the guys to sign your your uh, Lonely Grill um, Platinum record. I'm glad I there. had it, you baby. Brought it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for playing on it. Thank you oh, for, man. you know, giving it's us great, cool stuff oh, to listen to. Great experience. Love that record. Yeah, and we'll look forward to hearing you and some hit records to come, and um, we'll always look for your name on there. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it today. Yeah, you bet. This has been Designated Drummer with my, Mike Brignardella. Brignard, I can't even say it. That's easy for you to Mike say, Mike Brignardella. <laughs> That's Brignardello, kids. Any mangling will do. <laughs> See ya. See ya.